And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very, very special guest, Kelly Link on the Cood Street Podcast! And welcome back, Kelly, and congratulations on White Cat, Black Dog, which is now showing up on some bestseller lists even, isn't it? Uh, surprisingly, uh, yes. Uh, thank y'all for, for having me on. It is a very great pleasure. It's it's been it's been a while since you know sort of between between books. It's been a sort of crazy period. Has is it weird? It crossed my mind just the other day. Is it weird now, sort of having across the front of your book, you know, f- you know, f- finalist for the Pulitzer Prize? Uh, yes, I I uh, I will admit I kind of uh, disassociate. A little bit when I when I see that it looks it looks like something uh, that a, a precocious kid, you know, around eleven or twelve, might put on the book that they have written and sort of illustrated their own cover for, and you know, in a hopeful marker, sort of put that on it. Uh, <laughs> a bit like that. Well, actually, the the first edition of Stranger Things Happened had that sort of feeling to it. It had a homemade feel to it. I'm, it seemed to me, and. Uh, was that a was that a Shelley Jackson cover? It was. Shelley did the cover for my first two collections, and uh-huh. that was very much a uh, let's let's hey kids let's get together and and put on a show. Um, we had a lot of very expert help from friends who either had been running their own small press or were working for larger publishing companies, um, but it was. Uh, as much an experiment in publishing as it was anything else. And, 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 a, and, and a, no, you go ahead. I was say, and a crazily successful one in. Uh, I know we're slickly prof- um, and a crazily successful one. I mean, I mean, looking back, it's been what twenty-two years since that book came out. Really? Yeah. I will take your word for that. It might have been longer. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, think it, it came, I think it came out what two thousand one. Two thousand one. Hmm. Yep. We, which must also be a very strange thing to look back on and find that sort of you've been doing this that long. It is a little strange. Uh, on the one hand, it doesn't feel that long. On the other hand, if you told me that I'd been doing this for about 50 years, I'd say, well, a large gray amorphous right. yeah. <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, I think we had a conversation with you and Gavin many years ago in which I think Gavin was saying that the book did all right. And then suddenly, like a year after it came out, there was a New Yorker review. Is that Am I remembering that right? I, I, I'm not going to get the timeline exactly right. But after the book was, um, after we'd published it, I can sort of go through the, the chain of uh, yeah. chain of recommendations. I think that... Um, Jonathan Leatham had recommended it to Laura Miller, who hmm. then put it on the radar of a lot of other critics. Oh. And so maybe a couple of months after the book had come out, um, the New York Times reviewed it. Maybe that was what I'm thinking of. Yeah, and then that that definitely had a market effect. I don't know that reviews um, necessarily have that much power now. They must some of the time, but I don't think that you can. I would I would argue they have one kind of power, and that is uh, getting on bestseller lists and getting Pulitzer nominations for short story collections is almost unheard of. And I think I mean, that critical praise makes a difference in. In, 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 in that kind of a book. I agree that short story collections typically don't get as much 
attention. And when they do, it's a sign that um, it's a sign of good stuff. Yeah. I'm going to put these on because I'm getting a little bit of yeah, um, sure, sure. feedback. Yeah. Okay. No I feel like I'm getting ready to fly a plane. <laughs> well, actually, let me ask you, sort of, Get in Trouble came out sort of uh, back in 2015 and was received the way it was. What what was the, the journey from there to here? Because at some point there's a splash of an, of an announcement that you're going to be you know, doing this book and, in theory, another book that we may or may not talk about, which has been around for a while. But mm. it's like... You know, you start writing stories, and they become this book. At what time, point did it become, in your mind, this book? Well, and the, the thing about this book is, this is the first collection that I've published. Where maybe a third of the way through, I knew that I was going to organize it around a conceit, the idea mm-hmm. of the fairy tale. Um, and I, I should probably at some point go and take a look at earlier collections and see if I could attach a fairy tale subtitle to each story in each collection, because I probably could. Uh, the difference is, is that with this collection, uh, I knew uh, once I began the third story that this was going to be uh, a rule, a rule that I was, I was setting myself. Um, and so that, you know, the difference, I think the third story that I wrote was The White Cat's Divorce, which was specifically for uh, a catalog that was going to accompany a fairy tale exhibit. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was writing that, I began thinking, I'm thinking a lot about a collection called The Mary Spinster by Daniel Lavery, which I really mm-hmm. love, uh, which, which, is also sort of a collection of um, either new or significantly reworked older fairy tales. And I was thinking of it because I loved it a great deal. And I was thinking about that kind of approach when I was writing The White Cat's Divorce, which is not, you know, Daniel Lavery's voice is very much uh, Lavery's voice. And I was not going to be doing that, but I did like the idea of writing a whole string of stories that would engage with fairy tales. Um, no, you've already done, I, you'd done Cat Skin and Travels with the Snow, Snow Queen. and So you'd done fairy tale stories before. Yes, but, but I, I, I'd, never, I'd never thought every single story that I work on uh, is going to be, to my mind, not necessarily to the reader, very mm-hmm. engaged with a particular fairy tale. Um, and I'm going to keep that up as long as I'm working on, on this grouping of short stories. Part of what I thought was fun was, uh, I mean, there are stories that are versions of fairy tales. And then I, I said this in the review, and I hope you don't take it in the wrong sense, but some of the stories are like, where's Waldo? You're reading through the story. Where's the fairy tale going to show up? And sometimes it shows up like in the last three pages. I did. I didn't, you know, this is not no shade on, on people who are more faithful to a particular fairy tale. But, but I, when I write, I, I feel very dubious of the approach. Uh, if it's, if it's super direct every single time that some of the, excitement of of getting to write a short story which i have to spend some time locating that excitement anyway uh Mm -hmm. then if i know what my approach is going to be and it's going to be the same one so i i liked that i could write things like prince out underground or Mm -hmm. 
the white cat's divorce, but then do something um, which felt much more uh, estranged from the source material. Well, both estranged and in some case uh, more familiar because you uh, uh, Skinder's Veil, for example, begin. you've got two stories with academics as protagonists, which I'm a sucker for that, having been an academic for most of my career. But I mean, one of my favorite openings, which is shifting halfway through the first sentence is, once upon a time, there was a graduate student who in his fourth year had not finished his dissertation. That's a complete story in itself, but any reader could write it in any number of different directions. Well, I I mean, I think that there's a very strong case to be made that the, the fantastic story uh, of academia or an academic is, is a genre in itself, um, or at least... Uh, a cluster of genres, oh, yeah. if it's a James story or, or James Hines publisher parish um, mm-hmm. or Richard Russo's straight man that, that, that we know, we know that kind of story. It's, it, it has a story like quality to it, even from the, the start. It's a genre. Oh, yeah. Is this, this is the, is this the first time you've really sat down at some point and realized that what you were doing was writing for a collection and did it change how you were writing as you went? What if it did? I I mean I think because I'm primarily a short story writer that I am always thinking about story my stories my my approach to writing stories uh, as as not as not as a standalone that I think about them in relationship to stories that I've already written especially mm-hmm. stories that have not been collected yet. So I I do think about, for me, maybe a collection takes shape in the same way that a novel does, that I'm thinking about what I've already done uh, and the kind of space I have that I haven't filled yet um, and how those stories are going to feel next to each other. But I, I did really enjoy uh, having such a, a central uh, organizing principle with this collection. It was great. I could absolutely do it again. One of the stories that's, uh, it's a fascinating group of stories because you're right, they're all independent stories. They're linked by this, but looking at the background, I mean, the White Cat's Divorce, for example, that's, an, that's actually a literary fairy tale, if I'm not mistaken. That's not, it's not Grimm, that's Countess Dolnoy, or however yeah. you pronounce her name. But then there's the game of Smash and Recovery, and the title to any science fiction reader is going to say Cordwainer Smith. Yeah. So you've got a book of f- stories which are all related to fairy tales, but the backgrounds, the literary backgrounds, these are all over the map. Yeah. Yeah, I I was thinking about Cordwainer Smith and Ian Banks and a, mm-hmm. a genre that I don't feel that I have my feet in when I write. You know, it's, it's a very complicated genre, but very fun to write mm-hmm. in. And so Ian Banks and Cordwainer Smith were kind of my my two uh, navigating tools. The, Not the bad tools, tools to start with. No, they felt like great tools. <laughs> Are you strongly attra- attracted to writing science fiction? Because, I mean, as you say, it's not the thing you do the most. I, I love reading it. Um, I am a little wary of writing it because it's, it's, not, my, it's not my natural genre. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that much more so than ghost stories or other kinds of fantasy, um, I'm approaching it, I feel, much more as a reader than as a writer. I'm trying mm-hmm. to 
remember the things that make it work for me. I was, uh, I, I, I don't want to harp on Cordwain or Smith, but he's not like other science fiction writers in that there's no, there's no set of rules. There's no a John W. Campbell kind of, we have to do this this way. And so they feel like fables. And I was just reading for review earlier this week, a uh, collection from Subterranean Press of the early Howard Waldrop stories. And two of them are Cordwainer Smith stories. He was imitating Cordwainer Smith when he was like 20 years old. And his fiction, of course, turned into Howard Waldrop fiction. So my question is, did you read a lot of Cordwainer Smith when you were younger? I did. Um, I had a conversation years ago. Uh, I, I taught at Clarion in Michigan. I overlapped with Gordon Van Gelder, who was coming in to teach. We were on a panel together at the bookstore. Uh, and he, he was talking about, I think we were both talking about the idea of the golden age. Mm-hmm. They're coming for you. <laughs> I'm going to mute myself for a minute. Or oh, it's very dramatic. I think it, it adds a certain kind of tension. Um, I so we over we we were on a panel together, and um, I said something I, I think about the golden age science fiction, mm-hmm. and he said, you know. Strictly speaking, what you're talking about is is not the golden age. It may be your personal golden age, but it's it's not. And it was the period. It's a period where, um, you know, Joanna Russ and uh, and and you had all these people coming in and doing much more unusual things. And Cordwainer Smith, Alfred Bester, you know, when I was first reading uh, Damon Knight, uh, mm-hmm. when I was first reading anthologies of science fiction. Um, it was a real mix. It wasn't just Heinlein. It was all these, um, or the people that Campbell would have been publishing. It was much stranger work. And so to me, that was my baseline for what science fiction could do. Um, and even Heinlein gets super weird, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the novels. So my, my and, and Le Guin, you know, my idea of where science fiction began is, is a very personal one. It, it mm. begins with these, these, these writers. Which reminds me of something else you wrote this year. I think it was this year. It was an introduction to a new edition of The Lathe of Heaven, yeah. um, which is one of Le Guin's probably l- less read novels, I guess, because it's so strange. Um, but uh, what what made you agree to do that? Obviously, people would like you to write introductions to all kinds of. What about that novel in particular? Well, that was the novel that they that they okay. um, they they own the rights to that they have the rights <laughs> to publish, and I think I would probably be willing to write about any any Le Guin book at all. Um, but I also agreed because it had been a while since I'd read that, and it was. The idea of going back to look at it again was was very appealing, um, and I I really love the I I love reading the work which now feels like a kind of historical record of what mm-hmm. the what the culture's cultural subconscious was was thinking about what what very smart uh, well read people who are writing in a particular period. Um, the way they saw the world. I'm reading a, a book now, uh, Ray Russell's uh, "The Case, The Case Against Satan," um, which I've never read. Ray Russell. Uh, it's a pretty. Guy, he wrote a novel called Sardonicus, and he was a Playboy writer, as I recall. Really? Well, there's was... a there's also a collection of his short fiction that I'm going to go read as well. But <laughs> this this predates uh, The Exorcist, uh, but it's very mm-hmm. similar. But reading it 
you know, I'm, 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 I'm old enough that I'm close to the period when that book was published. Uh, uh-huh. There's much work that, uh, you know, I read when it was first, when it first came out, which now is sort of receded culturally yeah. uh, into this, this weird space. Yeah. You know, there were writers from that period that seemed to be, I mean, Ray Russell, I've not heard the name in years, although you should look up Sardonicus because it was made into a very strange movie also. Okay. Um, but apart from that, there was Charles Beaumont who keeps sort of bobbing up every now and then. I think uh, somebody at the New York Review Press may have been Lethem or somebody edited at Best of Charles Beaumont. And, right. uh, and, and these are writers who are of the same generation of, as, as, as Shirley Jackson, but they were publishing in different places. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think that's one of the reasons some of them have more or less disappeared from view. Well, you know, I Sturgeon. It's very hard yeah. to find a, a collection of, of Sturgeon's work now. It's hard to find Joanna Russ. It's hard to find all of these writers that um, uh, Fritz Leiber. I yeah. You know, I, I would love to see all of those books in print so I could carry them in our bookstore. Um, Joanna Russ will be in the Library of America this fall. Fantastic. Um, which which doesn't sell very many books through bookstores, I understand. No, no, no. I mean, like it, that, that's a nice piece of canonization. But I mean, yeah. the challenge for a reader, I mean, an actual average reader, is how do you find these? Because I've often felt, as a reader, that you know, you talk talk about Sturgeon. Where's the simple, easy book to pick up? You know, in other yeah. words, you go yeah. in and you get there's a ten dollar paperback or something or whatever it might be of the selected stories or this or that, and the Deluxe editions and the Library of American editions are great, but they don't actually do anything to make that author easy to find anymore. And, and like and Joanna Russ, the, the, mm. the problem with Russ, with John Brunner, with um, all these people is that their work isn't casually available. And I mean, and also there's got to be a realistic thing, and this would be a thing for you as a bookstore owner as well. There's only so much shelf space you have, yeah. and there are new books coming out all the time. You can't have all those old books that you'd love to have on the shelf as well as all the other books you need to have. No, although what I will say, if you live in a community that has a lot of thriving bookstores, which mm-hmm. we do, you don't have to carry everything. What what we actually do very well with um, is books that we love that um, are not as common in the other bookstores. So we have a lot of, we have a lot of backlist. We have mm-hmm. a vigorous horror section um and that stuff really sells for us and i think in part that's because within nine or ten miles there are five other great bookstores where you can get all kinds of other things yeah go ahead i'm curious as a writer you have in a sense a lot of extracurricular activities you publish you have a book, you know, your own bookstore. How how does that, if it does, impact you as a writer? You know, everything kind of kicked along pretty well, um, and until Gavin came down with long COVID, sure. hmm. and that has really uh, eaten up. Um, in part because for most of this, it's not just me; it's me and Gavin, and Gavin sure. is running yeah, yeah. a lot of the back end. Yes. Um, and so the, the press is, we're going to take a hiatus for a year. Uh, the bookstore functions because we have a really, really uh, great team of booksellers who now are, um, have sort of free, free reign 
to uh, keep the store going in the way that they seem, you know, feel that it would be best to do. And so I'm there two or three times a week. Um, but when we first took over the space um, and then through the pandemic, it was mostly just me and Gavin. Um, yeah. And it is a very different experience to uh, be in the bookstore every single day as opposed to, um, you know, stopping, stepping by for a couple of hours each week. Yeah. But it is a community that really wants a bookstore. The landlord really wants a bookstore. Um, and even, uh, you know, being neglectful owners uh, of a of a bookstore that everybody <laughs> wants to be there and everyone is happy to work in has worked pretty well. But yeah, my writing my writing has has kind of taken a <laughs> has fallen off in the last year, especially. Very understandable. Are you still what, having fun writing though? I mean, as much fun as I ever had, which is to okay. say, <laughs> writing is is uh, very rarely fun. Uh, I want to throw out another name at you in terms of people that you've read, because we've talked a little bit about Le Guin and, and, and Joanna Russ and Cordwainer Smith. And I'll explain to you afterwards why I'm throwing this name out. But it's M.R. James, who you've, you've, you've talked often about your love of ghost stories, kind of the definitive English ghost story author was M.R. Was James. And I was rereading some those stories are stranger than just ordinary ghost stories. Um, yeah. And the reason I ask it now is because I think there's an M.R. James renaissance on the way. The epigraph to Silvia, Silvia Marina Garcia's next novel, Silver Nitrate, is from M.R. James. Today I got in the mail a collection of short stories from Sarah Tolmy, one of which is titled, uh, let me see really quickly now, The Hand of M.R. James. There are M.R. James. So, so here you have, um, at least two young, really, well, young, uh, a new kind of voice, not the kind of people you would assume reading M.R. James. M.R. James is the kind of person you would think, fusty old English uh, gentleman in clubs. You've got, you've got feminist writers with radical ideas about fiction, and they love M.R. James. Are you one of them? Absolutely. Um, you know, the great thing about M.R. James is he stays in print as well. well yeah. It's, you know, in the way that we were talking about other writers, it's always possible to find either a new or a used copy of a M.R. James collection. Right. Um, but yeah, I love M.R. James. Um, and I think uh, it was, I probably first encountered his work in an anthology, maybe a Helen Hoke anthology. Mm hmm. Uh, and then track down everything I could find. Um, and I do, I read, I still go back and read uh, E.F. Benson uh, and L.P. Hartley, uh, who I love, but I have to say that M.R. James sticks the most out of those, out of those writers. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I can't tell you why. I think his, his prose style is, feels very um, clean is not the right word, but it, it, it feels very, uh, very elegant and and accomplishes sort of um, what it sets out to do in terms of atmosphere, in terms of um, authority, uh, and in terms of really managing to scare you when you read it. Well, they're, they're very scary. And I think the other thing, which, which I think I see some of in your fiction also, is that sometimes you're reading the story and you're thinking, which one of these things is the ghost now? What exactly is, what's, this is really scary, but I'm not entirely sure what I'm scared of. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so there's a kind of unnerving, which is a kind of postmodern effect. You know, it's a sort of, he was doing the sort of thing 120 years ago that, uh, that people are rediscovering now, I think. Yeah. And he may not be the only one. You're right. There were other 
writers. I was I was trying to reread Algernon Blackwood, uh, who I used to love, and it doesn't work nearly as well. I don't know why. I I I, I admire Algernon Blackwood's sentences, but I he doesn't have the same effect. Yeah, uh, it's atmospheric, but he doesn't. I will say though, I tend to really love writers who are working in Algernon Blackwood's mode. Um, I love mm. T. Kingfisher novels. Mm-hmm. And uh, at least one of those, I think The Hollow Place maybe, is specifically an Algernon Blackwood. I'm not going to say it's a pastiche, but it is yeah. very Blackwood flavored. And of course she was- has her, just another parenthesis, she has her own fairy tale redaction coming out with Thornhedge uh, any week now, I guess. I I think all of her books are tremendous. Uh, the self-published ones, as mm-hmm. as well as the you know the the kids' books, which 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 our kid really enjoyed. I just read Gemma Files' um, latest collection, which also has a couple of very Mr. Jamesian short mm-hmm. stories in it. It's often said, and it's probably you probably are tired of seeing this in reviews that nobody else writes like Kelly Link, which is absolutely true. But there are other writers whose voices are unique in ways that are not like your voice. And so when I think of a a kind of odd, like no other story, I think of Kelly Link, but I can also think that of, let's say, Margot Lanigan, um, whose stories aren't like anybody else's stories. But they aren't like your stories, but they are odd. One of my favorite descriptions was Robert Aikman's description of his own fiction. He just called them strange stories. And I thought, that's pretty much as close as you can get. Yeah. And I, I love Robert Aikman. I, you know, I, we were, Peter Straub is somebody else who's, mm-hmm. whose mm-hmm. voice story to story or project to project may be different, but is, is very much uh, only something that, that Peter Straub could write. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I think Although the more can, you, yep, go ahead. Just as parentheses to that, I can, I can tell you what two Kelly Link stories were Peter Straub's favorites. Which? One, she says cautiously looking. Very like 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 oh <laughs> one one should be obvious. One was Lull because he, he bought it for that famous issue of conjunction early in your career. And this is only a conversation that we had years ago, so I don't know he obviously but the other one was the Stone Animals. Hmm. And that was after he read that, and this is a compliment, this is a, a an odd thing to say after after what his his tragic death last year, but uh I remember after he read Lull talking about how trying to figure out what kind of a writer was, what kind of writers were influencing you. And she said, he said to me, the the thing about Kelly Link is I think she's influencing me and nobody does that. (laughs) He was, he was absolutely an influence on me. You know, I miss mass market paperbacks because when I was younger, you know, all the writers that I love, I, I picked them up as mass market paperbacks. I picked up his novels as mm. mass markets, yeah. you know, all of the, the writers like Joanna Russ that we're talking about. Uh, you know, there's, it, it seems to me much harder now to acquire really good weird stuff, the kind of thing that used to come out in mass market paperback. There also seems to be more of a, a, a financial barrier. The way I yeah. remember being, you know, and I'm older than you by a little bit, uh, the way I remember encountering books it was either in a library where there was no financial barrier and there still isn't, but the books that I picked up were old secondhand copies for 20 cents or something or cheap paperbacks. And 
that that seems to have disappeared from the world as an easy option and makes mm -hmm. reading a new writer for the first time who's just debuting and that kind of thing a much more serious decision. I mean, when I read Neuromancer in 1984, it was a cheap paperback. If yeah. you want to go and read Some Desperate Glory by Emily Tesh, it's a more significant financial decision. And that, that's got to change how everybody encounters fiction and story. I think so. I, you know, I can remember being in Australia, uh, you know, around a decade ago and how much books cost. And mm -hmm. I feel that we have, we've gone the same way now that, <laughs> mm -hmm. that I, I, I own a bookstore and books come in and I sort of am entering them into the system and I look at the price and I think, ah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's too much. Yeah. It's, and it's very hard to, and that, that creates a barrier because, I mean, an on-read writer is really someone who's I mean, not building up an audience and a career and everything else, but also who's not being part of that conversation both broadly and individually for a reader. And that's an a, a, a real problem for everything. And it does seem to be getting worse. It's a, it's a greater challenge. I mean, I suppose unless you're willing to read digitally, which is a personal decision, but, you know, it, it does make it a real problem. Yeah. Well, I've seen the argument that... Um which I don't agree with, that the ebook, that uh, digital publication have fulfilled the role that were once that was once fulfilled by mass market paperback. And I think that's completely wrong because, uh, Kelly, as you were saying, you would run into a Peter Straub mass market paperback or, uh, uh, you know, or a Robert Ludlum or a Stephen King or a Dean Koontz. Anywhere you went, you go to the local Goodwill store, there would be those mass market yeah. paperbacks there. You would find them in spinner racks in drugstores when I was a kid. In other words, you couldn't avoid them. And they were like a quarter or 50 cents a piece to buy a used paperback. An ebook, you have to know what it is. You have to seek it out. You have to pay for it. And then you don't actually have something physical laying around the house reminding you to read it. I mean, my problem yeah. with ebooks is, frankly, because I get a lot of them uh, for review, I don't even know that I've got them unless I look into my list. Yes, I think they're they're weirdly invisible. Uh, they, and I mean, I I feel like that's I I don't love reading on screen, and part of that is because it's very difficult to read in any way except for forward and right. with a physical copy. You can, and I've always been a novel reader. At least I I will read in a novel, and then I may look a little bit ahead to see. Mm -hmm. where the writer is going. I may look at the end so that I can think about that ending as I am reading forward. Uh, and I wouldn't be able to read that way uh, electronically. It would. It, it doesn't have that ease of physical no. movement. And then you've also got the, you know, the additional things. It's like, I mean, to circle a little bit back to White Cat, Black Dog, things like making the book itself an artifact where it looks a particular way. You've got a cover that tells you something about it. You have illustration in there which also contributes to what you're doing none of which seems to work as well and i don't mean to sort of turn this into an anti-ebook kind of jeremiah which is not <laughs> how i feel ebooks are great and people who are fantastic but it's still it's a very different thing you know and that yes. kind of framing is important i think and it, it, it colors how you read something and i mean we've talked about you know, old paperbacks and when we encounter them and that first version of a book you encounter colors the story you read and it kind of stays with you sort of ever mm. after. I mean, if you read this particular 1975 edition 
of the lathe of heaven that was printed with this particular cover on it, that's always the book you're reading on some level. And it's always in that frame. Even if it's on a really weirdly inappropriate cover, sometimes they were back then. Frequently. No, I, you were right that if I think of a particular novel, mm. uh, I can almost always conjure up a bunch of sense memories and mm-hmm. of, of, a, of a place, uh, of a bookstore, of what that book felt like. Uh, you know, the kind of paper that it was printed mm. on because paper changes all the time. Um, all of that, the, the style of uh, typography, you know, the, 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 the way that the jacket design changes mm. over time, like all of that uh, is enormously pleasurable. It's yes, the book itself uh, can sort of survive um, lots of different uh, issues with, with a terrible cover, with being poorly printed, uh, with, you know, being water damaged, all of that is, you can sort of discard if something is good enough as you read. Uh, mm-hmm. But all of that is, is pleasurable in, in memory. Very much, very much so. Can we talk a little bit about, uh, about uh, you're saying you're taking a hiatus from small beer for a while, uh, which is too bad, but there's a lot of stuff in stock and there's a lot of stuff that nobody but small beer would would publish. Just last year and again this year at, at ICFA, which you should come back to sometime. I was chatting I with Richard, Richard Butner, who is a delightful guy, who mm-hmm. has a collection of, again, really unique, unusual stories. And I'm And he's very, very happy that it's a small beer book because he was worried about whether anybody else would touch it. Well, I think for a while we, we had not approached him because... Um, we know him very well. We are yeah. friends and uh, kind of figured that if at some point, if he wanted to be published by small beer, he might sort of approach us. But I think that, mm. that kind of diffidence was present on both sides um, because I, he runs Sycamore Hill, the workshop. Right. I've been reading some of those stories for 20 years now. Um, so I, I, I knew how good they were. And I think at a certain point, Gavin and I both felt there wasn't a collection of them out in the world. And so this, this was our moment, uh, to, to ask, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, I love his work. He has enough short stories for another collection. And at some point we will, we will do those. Um, he's a but, I mean, terrific oh, reader. But, but, but you're, the writers you publish at Small Beer are not all people you've known for years. They must come from somewhere other than Sycamore Hill. They do, but I will say that uh, Sycamore Hill has been kind of a great preview venue. There huh. are a lot of writers that we have published. Uh, Karen Joy Fowler, Marion McHugh. Yeah. Um, I can think of other writers. John Castle that we would like, you know, that, that either we have published or that I would like to publish uh-huh. if they ever had a collection that they wanted to send to us. Um, and in part, that's because genre is a, in some ways still a very small community, bigger than it used to be, but especially for short fiction, uh, right. you can kind of keep abreast of the, the writers who are working in it. It must be a hard decision to decide to pause the, the press for a while. Yes and no. I think we've been doing it for such a long time that uh, taking a, a year off from it doesn't feel entirely bad because we are still uh, we're still there with the the books that we have sure. put out, mm-hmm. um, and there are still books in the pipeline. So there's still books making their way to print, uh, which again 
you know, it doesn't feel as if we've stopped yet at the point where everything that we have in the pipeline is finished. That may in fact feel very strange uh, or it may feel very freeing. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Well, you've got a, you've got a very distinguished backlist that should, uh, uh, keep interest for a long time. I guess one of the things that makes me nervous whenever I hear about a, a, a press pausing, then you always wonder, is it going to come back? Yeah. Uh, and as you think of what happened, for example, uh, we were mentioning, or maybe we weren't mentioning Mary Rickard earlier, but we should have. And her first book was Golden Griffin. And Golden Griffin did some terrific stuff for, for a few years. And, and, you know, and they all looked like Arkham House books, and then they all went away. But one of the things which I do admire about small beer is that it's one of a handful of presses that you can kind of rely on as a press. In other words, it's relying on your and Gavin's editorial judgment. But you have an identity, which I think all your readers recognize. And you're not the only ones that do this. I mean, Subterranean Press has a very specific kind of identity. Uh, PS in England has a very specific kind of identity. And there are so few presses like that anymore that we consider, that I consider reliable, that a pause gives me pause. I and I think we would not be pausing at all if it were not for the fact that uh you know we sort of have the bookstore oh, yeah. as well and because the bookstore to pause the bookstore would mean to close the bookstore and to pause yeah. the press is more of an actual hiatus and I you know I I I am a very fearful person so when I <laughs> I am afraid to say oh no we'll definitely be back because that Ooh. feels like <laughs> I'm asking I'm asking for something terrible to happen that would in fact prevent us from coming back but I think neither of us have grown tired of either publishing no. or working with each other it's just yeah. you know we have not really Less. had an actual vacation since the pandemic began. Uh, and in right. some ways, this will be at least an opportunity for us to have a, a vacation. Well, but I, 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 I take your point. I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I can certainly think of um, many, many small presses that I loved that were dependent on a handful, one or two or a handful of people and of the hole they leave behind when they, when they close. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about pausing the press. Um, how in amongst everything, because I mean, in between the bookstore, in between small beer and everything else, how do you how do you find time to actually write? I mean, you don't write prolifically, but I mean, I imagine you're writing constantly. Would that be fair? No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't write. I don't write constantly. I, you know, I, I in fact can go for quite a long time without writing, mm-hmm. and it. I'm pretty sure that I am a happier person when I'm writing, but writing also makes me unhappy. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm in a weird interval right now where I just had a collection come out and mm-hmm. um, within less than a year, I will have a novel come out, uh, both of which represent about seven solid years of work. So sure. that feels extraordinary to me. Uh, I've never been in this position before. It's kind of, exciting but i also am very aware that i need to start something again in order to have more books out i would like to not have a seven-year gap go by in between publication i would Mm -hmm. like to begin i have a couple of ideas for new things and i'm halfway through a middle grade novel and i would like Mm -hmm. to go back to that but what i do need is i think i need about a week or two weeks in a cabin 
uh, <laughs> where I am not doing other kinds of work in order to get the other half of that done and in order to begin the, the next the next thing. So was the novel written at the same time as White Cat, Black Dog? It was. Uh, yes. You know, the short stories were written for different editors sure. during the period of years that I was working on mm. the novel. Um, and the last story, Prince Head Underground, was written after I had turned in uh, the first draft of the novel and the rest of the collection. How does it feel, after all, so long and having everybody talk about it so much, because they have, to have finished the novel? Feels pretty good. You know, I have to admit, uh, I feel that whatever it is that I wanted to do with the novel, I did it. Uh, that doesn't mean that anybody else I feel should necessarily enjoy it or, or <laughs> you know, sort of see the same thing in it that I do. But I also felt when I finished the novel and was sort of looking at it, that the level of satisfaction that I felt about it was about the same as it is for a short story. Hmm. I think because it's one. So I, on the other hand, I'm I'm pleased because I wrote something really long, and I think I made it work at that length. And I haven't done that before. But uh, you know, I, I I I don't know how I feel about it. I think I'm more naturally a short story writer, and I know how to I know how to feel happy about a short story if I feel that I've done what I wanted to do with it. And the novel, I I I feel like I had a very strange child. Did you did you feel at all annoyed? Because for 20 years, you've been fielding questions about when is the novel coming? And I know from having talked to him a couple of times, Ted Chang is really tired of that question. Did, did you get tired of it as well? I'd say that I got tired of it so much as I uh, felt that I was giving the, the, the same response over and over again. <laughs> so it was a little boring. Which is that I, you know, I I didn't really feel any desire to write one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I I will admit if people don't like the novel, I will take a certain kind of satisfaction. I'll be like, oh. <laughs> you know, you guys wanted me to, to write this, so I I did. And if you don't like it, then maybe you should just stick with my short stories. <laughs> I'm interested to hear you say what you were saying about writing a novel because there was a time when I felt, probably around the group of stories that ended up in Pretty Monsters, that I felt like you were almost rehearsing the idea of writing a novel. Yeah, you know, around the time of say the Wizards of Profil and the Constable Constable of Abel. Hmm. I I think that uh, that was the argument that Holly Black gave me when I was selling. Uh, get in trouble to Random House, she said, you should sell them a novel as well. Um, if you have any sort of idea that would be novel-like, hmm. um, because otherwise you will write a novel by accident. Uh, and it's much better to write a novel on purpose that you know where you're going to be sending it to. And that, that seemed, you know, that, that also seemed true to me that this, the short stories are getting not very short. <laughs> But there's also a sense in which uh, no one knows what to expect from a Kelly Link novel because we're so used to reading shorter fiction. And there's a, I, I don't know, from from your point of view, does does that expectation make any difference? You're right. You were. This is an incoherent question, but I'll hope you can make untangle it by the time I'm done. Another one. <laughs> was, was, was there a sense that? Um, the novel you were going to write is the novel you were going to write, no matter what anybody thought they were expecting. I think that uh, 
I had a very specific idea for mm-hmm. actually for a trilogy. And Ooh. so part of the interest for me was compressing a trilogy and changing that 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 sort of narrative that I mm-hmm. very much had in my head into something that would work at novel length. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is it is a very particular kind of novel. Uh I think it probably aligns more along uh, the the end of the writing spectrum that Magic for Beginners or The Wizards of Perfil uh, aligns ooh. with. And the next, if I do write another novel, um, it would be what I want is to write something much shorter and much weirder. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Sort of a short ghost story novel. I think in part because I have the same feeling that I do with short stories is, well, I've done that. You know, I've, I've done yeah. this particular yeah. thing. So what could I do that would be as different as possible from the thing that I just did? Which is uh, very much like Susanna Clark's response after years of being, uh, of, of people waiting another version of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel to do something completely different, way shorter, and in its own way, just as good. Yeah. Yeah. Piranesi is, is great. Uh, and you're right. I had not thought of that, but I... I think the impulse maybe comes from the same place. Uh, I the novel is called the the Book of Love, and the next novel I would really really like to call the Lover of Books. Although it will not be the same <laughs> genre, it will be not connected in any single way, and yet it, it's a title that would really work for the the thing that I want to do, um, which is kind of a, a Fritz Library. Uh, oh, great! Ghost story. Yes. Did you know that Fritz Leiber and Joanna Russ were fans of each other? I mean, that makes absolute sense. Oh, good for good for not, you. <laughs> I did not know. I did not know that, but uh, I absolutely believe in it. One of in one of um, the last Fritz Leiber Fofford stories, there is a character who is clearly Alex from the Adventures of Alex, and one I of the Alex, that. yeah, and and one of the Alex stories has this pair and a pair of adventures and a tour clearly Fofford and the Gray Mouser. And they were deliberately playing with each other. And they apparently had a lot of fun with it. I think that I read the Joanna Russ story and thought, wait a minute. And then I thought, that probably isn't, but sure, of course it it was. Totally was. Totally was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A long way from fan fiction, though. Yeah. That far, but a little. You know, one of the the other writers that I've been thinking about a great deal – is is Tanith Lee because of course mm-hmm. she also mm-hmm. published mm-hmm. a collection of, of of retold fairy tales, right? And about how how um, distinct her voice is. Well, the thing about fairy tales, I, I, and, and you do a lot of different things with fairy tales. Uh, obviously, Jane Yolen, who doesn't live very far from you, does a completely different kinds of things. She's a virtual scholar of fairy encyclopedia. Um, we mentioned Angela Carter. There's an anthology by Jack Zipes, who probably, I don't know if you've met Jack, but he knows more about fairy tales than anybody alive. A whole anthology of nothing but versions of Little Red Riding Hood. And yeah. they're all different. It's called The Trials and Tribulations of Little Red Riding Hood at some university press. And what it does, apart from the fact that some of them are just very funny, like James Thurber, is you realize these are armatures. These are frameworks around which you can hang almost anything you want. Yeah. Armatures is a great a great word for that, but they are they are absolutely uh, structures that that you can build whatever you, they're they're like tinker toys. You can sort yeah, of exactly. build any anything out of them. Which means you're probably not done with fairy tales, even if you've got a whole book of them out now. 
No, I, you know, actually talking with y'all, I thought there was nothing that would stop me uh, from doing a, a second round of this. Um, sure. You know, I could I could do this as much as I want to because the stories don't have to have anything in common with each other except for that that central sure. idea. Are you ever attracted, as a short story writer, and given the amount of time it takes, I I, I know to actually write to to creating something closer to the story suite kind of structure, where you have these interlinked stories that come together. Uh, or something like Red is Blood, which is a much more overtly kind of I am writing fairy tales kind of a thing. Do those kind of forms attract you? I feel that um, because I went through an MFA program that is as, as much as those sort of novels and stories work, that I am suspicious of them because that is an approach which uh, is so often... Um, kind of a recommended approach in the MFA program, that it is a way to sneak out a collection that a publisher will buy. Hmm. Uh, and there are, there are some fabulous ones. I think there's a Kay Gibbons one that I read many years ago, which I loved. Maybe Ellen Foster's is the name of it. Um, hmm. But I, as much as, as many great examples of that form that I can think of, it's never appealed to me. Well, I wonder if some of that has to do with its being a prescription left over from an MFA program, uh, because I mean, and I don't want, I actually I do want to get into MFA programs. But we don't have enough time, <laughs> 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 because I, at, at my age, I've known writers who are of my generation who were horribly mistreated by the MFA programs they were in because they wanted to write science fiction and fantasy. And then I talk, well, I'll give you two examples. One was Joe Haldeman, who was at Iowa many years ago. And the more recent example was Carmen Maria Machado, who was at Iowa decades later. By the time she was there, she could pretty much do what she wanted. Uh, but for generations before that, uh, you were told not to write genre. You were told not to even today, I, I found this out just a few months, a few weeks ago when I was writing a letter. Even today, the Guggenheim Foundation has in its guidelines, genre work will not be considered. So so that whole kind of establishment, and I see MFA programs as part of the establishment, it strikes me as something that genre writers have been fighting against for 50 years now. Only now it's more of an organized industry than it was back then. And I, I also think that enough uh, people who... Uh, did not have those feelings later on went on to teach in programs or yeah. direct those programs that, that it has shifted a great deal. Um, you know, I, I did pick an MFA program where I knew one of the people teaching in it, Fred Chapel had written uh, ghost stories okay. or, right. yeah. or stories mm -hmm. of the fantastic. I knew that Orson Scott card had been there briefly. Um, it was also in my hometown, which meant the tuition was very low. Uh, but the fact that, that there did seem to be less stigma attached to genre at that program meant I felt comfortable applying to it. Um, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And Clarion, which I love with all my heart, you know, came about in part uh, as an organized summer program because... I think the the MFA structure was not particularly inviting uh, for genre writers 
for a number of reasons. One, that you have to go for two years to the expense, mm-hmm. but three, also the fact that it is not something which is necessarily welcoming, welcoming to people who write genre fiction. But there's been such an enormous change over the last 20 years yeah. uh, that now if when I, when I teach or when I'm reading applications, more than half of the people uh, who are going to Clarion have either gone through an MFA program Hmm. Or or about to go to one. Well, you do have also this idea, which I've seen showing up on Facebook and Twitter. Young people who absolutely believe that you're not allowed to publish a novel unless you have an MFA. It's like a license to publish. There's a, it, it, there was a classic Donald Barthelme story called Dolt. And it's a story about a guy who's studying for the National Writer's Exam because he won't be allowed to be published unless he scores. It's like the CPA exam or something. So he's asking his wife, what are three archaic words for sword? And um, it's, it's, it's hilarious, but it was meant to be one of Barthelme's completely absurdist things. And now it's sounding more and more credible. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, I wonder how many people who are going through programs now read Barthelme. I hope they I do. do. I don't think so either. No, it's yeah. it's sad, but I don't know what short fiction we what short fiction people read these days. Jonathan and I were wondering a couple of weeks ago if anybody reads Harlan Ellison. Um, that is a great question. I am not sure. Again, his books are not necessarily easy to find. No. Uh, yeah. I mean that. In fact, there is no. I don't think there is a readily available standard like here's a great harlan ellison collection just read that and also i tend to think you know some some writers some creators they they get stuck in a period of time and to me ellison is always of a period of time there's that sort of early to mid 70s you know you picture him with a pipe and sort of the jacket and it's like that and, and that time and i wonder if it's you know so the world is circled around to be willing to read from that time at the moment that that the that kind of you know sort of niche into which he exists he he you know, he, f- he fall but you know who knows writers come around yeah they do i i again there's there's so much to read at the moment i think there's it feels to me as if there's more more to read than there previously was like even five ten years ago oh yeah and so maybe it is much harder to dip further back well i mean i think there's a thing which old people like me lose track of which is we're i'm an old i'm old people like me that sort of there's 30 more years of books or 40 more years of books that have come out since i started reading yeah um and that that contributes to that i think a bit to that feeling of there are more books i think yeah. i'm still aware of all those books that came out over the, those 40 years or so but then i look around at all the new book you know there's you know now there's now what is it like 27 cj cherry books in a series rather than just the latest one that kind of deal so it's like it's, it's an interesting time. I mean, and I think people always forget that sort of you're looking for things to, in fact, fall out of print and disappear to give everything, other things space to exist and be found. Mm-hmm. It's part I mean, of that's a natural also kind true. Of turnover of things. That's true. And many of the things that I went hunting for when I was younger, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily bad that I had to go hunting for them. I, no. I think I had a chemistry teacher uh, who recommended that I go find Dorothy Dunnett novels, hmm. uh, which were not in print. So I had to sort of track them down one by one uh, at used bookstores. Um, I, I, and that was, the, it was fun. I didn't mind Ooh. doing that. Yes. There was a certain joy to, to real scarcity back in the day. 
well, as opposed sense, to sort of uh, something everywhere. But anyway. There was a sense many years ago that younger writers entering the field had to compete with Ellison or, or, or Le Guin or, or Sturgeon or whatever. Now I get the sense that so you would mention Sturgeon earlier, and his stories hold up pretty well, actually, for the most part. Uh, but now I feel like Sturgeon can't compete with the flood of stories that's out there now. And the number of readers who are just trying to keep up with what's current literally don't have time to go back and look at uh, the ancestry, with some exceptions. I mean, occasionally, I know, I think one of the stories in, uh, in, in the new book was from uh, Ellen Datlow's Shirley Jackson collection. Um, so if you have a lot of attention thrust into Shirley Jackson, but that involves two TV movies, a couple of biographies, a movie about her, you know, she becomes a celebrity figure. Does it take that much attention for somebody to read short stories from 70 years ago? I mean, maybe. Maybe it does. Mm-hmm. I I will say that even before even before the um the TV show came out, before there was sort of a resurgence um mm-hmm. that the booksellers who work at Book Moon were aware of her and read mm-hmm. her. Um mm-hmm. To the extent that they keep a, you know, since we are not working there anymore, I came in one day and they had a Shirley Jackson tip jar uh, hmm. into which they have to put money if they bring up Shirley Jackson in conversation <laughs> when nobody else has asked them about Shirley <laughs> Jackson, which which they fill with they fill with quarters, um, and that may be in part because every school kid reads the lottery and maybe then it. maybe yeah. some of them go down and, and, and track, track down more Shirley Jackson. Uh, and if you love scary novels, uh, eventually you're going to come across the haunting of Hill house. Right. Uh, we've always lived in the castle, but I, I think that there are very few writers. It seems to me who get to occupy that, that space. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't know I mean, how to do with her. The only thing that's odd with her is that she, she has become so prominent over the last few years, and there are like several novels that are either there's Liz Hand's direct sequel to it to Hill House, there's uh, Alex Harrow's pastiche of it or, mm. or, or tribute to it. There's one coming out. I think uh, Arcadia Martin had just something that's well, related to well. uh, yeah, Liz Hand has, has, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it just seems to be over time, but also she said. Jackson seems like someone who's always kind of been there, not you know, never, never actually kind of like lost. She was always someone who was being read and discussed. Mm. But we are cycling around too much, and we need to yeah. let you get on with your life <laughs> uh, because, because because time goes on. What we should say is that obviously, White Cat, Black Dog is out in bookstores everywhere right now, and with a gorgeous edition with beautiful illustrations. And uh, we should mention Sean Tan. We have not mentioned absolutely. Sean. Those are absolutely perfect illustrations. They're strange in the illustrative way that the stories are strange in the narrative way. Yeah, I will I will tell you one thing about those. Um, I, you know, he illustrated Pretty Monsters years yeah. ago, and the fact that he had the time and inclination and generosity to sort of <laughs> do these is uh huge to me it's it's one of the best things that could could happen but uh there is one story in the collection um the girl who did not know fear and my editor and i went back and forth a couple of times um because there's a there's a uh 
it's a, it's a werewolf story. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wanted me to find a way to put the word werewolf in one or two more times. <laughs> and I really, I resisted that because I wanted the story to work as a not werewolf story as much right. as I wanted it to mm. be a werewolf story. And she said, I, I take your point. I sort of described what I f- hoped the story was doing if it wasn't a werewolf story. And uh, then Chantan sent in the illustration and I was really happy because it is very clearly a wolf-like creature sitting uh, <laughs> in a plane seat, but I didn't have to say the word werewolf. And the thing that I love best about this is uh, my mom read the collection. My mom um, mm. is a very generous reader, uh, but also I think not totally on board with, with genre stuff. And yeah. um, when I think maybe uh, the piece in the New Yorker came out, she said to me, a werewolf story (laughs) and i said well didn't you see the illustration she said well i didn't take it literally um i said do you want me to write she's a werewolf in the margin uh you know at an appropriate point she said yes please do that (laughs) i love that illustrations tell you something that that the, the 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 words don't that this is to me, the the joy of, of illustrative work. I, I have to say, now I'm imagining an annotated edition of I the book. I was thinking the same thing. The first point of the Kelly link for everything. A red pen pointed in here. Right. This bit here. That's this. And this is this. Did you miss this bit? That was this. It would be this huge bit. fun. This part is in hell, and this part. Well, my mom, I, I am going to do it, and I'm going to circle the word werewolf. Where it I'm going to put a little arrow. Uh, but my mom is a, a very good sport, and she will actually think that this I is enormously entertaining. I'm, 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 I'm ready for an annotated edition for inattentive readers. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I do feel bad for my mom that, that at some point she will have to read the novel, which is... You know, 226,000 uh, <laughs> words, 220, and she's going to have a lot of unanswered questions about it, and I'm not going to have the time to annotate that. <laughs> so, so that means basically in a single day, your pub, your published work will double, just about. Yeah, I think yeah. so. That, that's a pretty fascinating idea. And yeah. it's what, about, th- about this time next year for the Book of Love? Mm, I think uh, less than a year. I think they're they're thinking about uh, February. Wow. So I will that be getting be copy edits back in a couple of weeks, and then I will have a month, and then I guess we'll be discussing things like covers. And then it's going to be chunky. It's going to be quite chunky. It's going to be the size of the Mariana Enriquez our share of night. That's that was fantastic. My big book for last year. Or this year. <laughs> no. Well, it's going to be a busy year because we've got Meanwood coming out and later this yes. summer too. Yeah, I cannot wait for that. Did you read Spear? No, I have Is not it... read Spear. No, I haven't. Oh, read no, Spear. I have to read Spear. No, no, no. no Gavin, Gavin had it first. Gavin, Gavin gets it. <laughs> and she says she's going to write more of it. Good. Which I'm very, very, very excited about because she's she so fabulous. Stunned by the response to Spear. I mean, she was obviously writing it out of love, but then getting all the nominations, getting all the attention mm-hmm. she's got, she's delighted. It's great because they haven't had a great year in other ways. But she was she was at uh, ICFA, right? Yeah, uh, she she and, uh, and 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 Kelly came down both in fall and and, and this time around. And I, oh, fantastic! And they're uh, 
Um, I mean, they're they're doing better. I mean, Kelly's their problems with parents and various other things. Kelly's got a new job now, but Spear just kind of really hit it bigger than anything she's done in years at a time when I think they both really could use that kind of good news. Oh, good, good. Well, Gavin, there are certain authors that Gavin gets first first read, and 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 so that's that's his. It was the best thing I read last year. Oh, fantastic. It's so good. It has a beautiful cover. It does. Mm-hmm. It's, go- it's a gorgeous edition. It's just yeah. gorgeous. Um, I mean, Ravina Kai does wonderful work, uh, yeah. and it's just great. But, you know, sort of now, now that you've turned into a hack producing enormous big fat books, yeah. <laughs> it's all. So, do you ever secretly, think pro- secretly, I've always wanted to be a hack. I used to well, look at the. It's, the- it's an honorable thing. The writers in the sixties and seventies who are pumping out these short short novels, or the writers of the eighties who are putting out enormous tomes, and think that'd be I fantastic. Wondered, to be able I, to I, do I, that. I was fascinated by when when you talk to somebody like Silverberg who was publishing something like a million dollars, a million words a year, uh, all in, in forgettable, you know, fantastic universe and an amazing and fantastic. Digest magazine, and in the middle of that, would write stories that were absolutely gorgeous. And I always, and actually, Harlan could do some of the same thing. He could write a beautiful story, one of the twelve that he'd written that month, yeah. and 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 they saw no contradiction in that, as far as I can tell. I don't think that there is one. I I absolutely believe that uh, doing a kind of um, facile work which is driven by a certain kind of genre or set of tropes mm-hmm. um that you i 100 percent believe you, you do that kind of work and then it sort of shapes a much weirder piece of work that you do in the midst of all that 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 you sort of spring out of that mm-hmm. more formulaic approach into something weirder and then you can dip right back in i mean i i think that both kinds of work uh, can feed each other. Mm. I agree. I, uh, you mentioned Fritz Leiber earlier, uh, who could do that for a while, but my sense at the end of his career when he tried to write a serious literary novel like The Wanderer, it really did not work. Yeah, yeah. But the Fawford stuff is still just as lively as ever. Yeah. And are things like The Big Time. Uh, there's some great stuff there. And my sense, I met him once, um, uh, and my sense was it was a job. He was not an author. He was a writer. He made a living writing. Don't don't confuse that with being an artist. Hmm. The only thing is, yeah. I'm not sure about that dichotomy at all. I mean, quite often they seem to commit art, you know, along the way with you know, with, with being writers, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah. Black dog. Yes, my my dog has become aware that something is going on somewhere. <laughs> well, one of my very favorite writers is Joan Aiken, who. Yeah. I think treated it very much as a job, but also clearly took a lot of delight in it. And her prose is not always elegant. There will, she will repeat a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, there will be adjectives in there that sort of repeat on the same page, but doesn't take away from sort of the liveliness and the, the strangeness of, of her work. Mm. You know, she's a phenomenal writer. Yeah. Right. And, and, anyway. and a phenomenal imagination too. It's a, yeah. Uh, which I think is, is kind of the key to the whole thing. And I think that's one, I was at a conference many years ago when Leslie Fiedler, the American literary scholar who uh, interested in science fiction late in his career, 
And it would have a bunch of academic papers. And the academic papers, this is back in the 70s or 80s, when all the academic work was either about Le Guin or Stanislaw Lim or Philip K. Dick. Those were the only ones anybody wrote about. And his argument was, it's very easy to explain why Le Guin is as good a literary writer as we have, or to explain why Lim is as good a satirist as we have, or to explain, but you cannot, if you, but, but that's easy. He said the hard part is explaining A.E. Van Vogt, because anybody <laughs> with a undergraduate education in literature can point out everything that's wrong with Van Vogt. And pretty much he said, everything is wrong with Van Vogt, but the stories still work. And if you can't explain why those stories work in, in spite of their repeated violations of every literary principle, then you can't explain science fiction. Well, and this is this is one of my favorite things to talk about when I am hanging out with my friends here <laughs> is to talk about the kind of work which should not work, which should not in fact pull you through, but still does. It is easy to point to something that is good, but I really believe that it is useful for writers to attempt to figure out where the pleasure comes from and, and what makes somebody love a piece of work, which in fact is, is kind of plotting in almost every single way. Not defensible by any literary <laughs> yeah. standard, right. Yeah. And when I teach, I always ask uh, people to not only the name, the, the writers or the work that they are aspiring to be in the company of, but to tell me the thing that they love, which they would read. And it does not matter to them if it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. that it is a, a genre or a form or a kind of exploration of a, an idea or a character that they love it so much they don't care if it's good or bad. Because that's that's always in some ways more interesting to know what, right. what they read that sort of bypasses their, their critical faculties. And in many ways, doesn't it call into question this idea of good or bad anyway? I mean, you know? I, the, the, the standard that I sort of attempt to work by is not is it good or bad but what does it do what mm. is what is the purpose what purpose is it serving and what effect does it have because we can argue a great deal about whether something is good or bad uh but it is much more interesting to explain why something has a certain effect on you and, and certainly the why did you want to keep reading it because i mean mm. a lot of it comes down to like the good bad thing is did i want to keep reading it or did i not Oh yeah, uh, and you're right. There are some things wh which would never pass through a MFA program in a fit that you would read over and over and over again. Oh yeah, and other things which are well formed but sterile. Yeah, you know where you kind of go. Well, this is fine. Yeah, well, story. It's all about story. anyway. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my, my, dog is, my dog has showed up with a large furry ball and is oh, giving me the hard, the hard stare. <laughs> Okay, so I think what, your dog is telling you it's time to pay attention. Yes. Absolutely, this book is in stores, and it's. Well, wonderful. Why are you holding it up? Jonathan is holding this up on the camera, which only Kelly and I can see. This is a podcast, Jonathan. There's no video. I can totally explain why I held it up, Gary. I'm signaling to you. I, I'll hold up my iPad. I mean, come on. I'm signaling like we're doing this bit where we 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 bring this to a. Very gracious and graceful yes. conclusion. Very, very you know, neatly landed. You know, you landed by going. You're like, there's this book out, and there's this other book coming out next year that to be excited about as well. Which, we, you know, book of we, love. We, we, we will all keep an eye out for that. Well, I and I, I am looking forward to it. I figure that uh, 
that this will be the book where I will get some bad reviews, uh, which is something to be excited about. Um, speaking of the, the novel. I'm, you might glad, be I'm, I'm glad to hear that because there isn't any way that uh, you won't disappoint people. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I, 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 the question is, how many will I disappoint? <laughs> I'll, I'll keep a tally. <laughs> we, we keep a tally, but keep in mind, keep also, also keep in mind Piranesi, because that disappointed any number of people. What, what is yeah. this? This is not what we There's no magic and there's no Victorian England in this. Uh, people yeah. just would not. And then if they actually read it, they were thinking, wow, she has completely done something that uh, is not like anything else, especially not like anything else she has ever read. Yeah. I'm so, trying to imagine the random house marketing department person who listens to this and they're like, oh my God, what is she saying? <laughs> you looking for the disappointing? She I, hopes they, I won't, really, they won't like this one? I have to yeah. give a, a plug to Random House's uh, PR department, which has <laughs> really, uh, and, and obviously there's not a single publishing house in the world that um, every single writer has had a good experience with, but their PR department has been pretty phenomenal, not just arranging things, but yeah. making sure that uh, things go smoothly. Excellent. Um, and again, maybe that will change for the novel. Maybe I will be disappointed in Random right. House's PR. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I don't want the tagline like, to be. You'll be disappointed yeah. in me. <laughs> I, just, I just like I'm trying. I'm trying to imagine them sort of. Here, here, here's the tagline for the novel. I hope it might suck for some of you. I mean, uh, I, I could absolutely write that jacket copy. Begin the jacket copy with "Sorry if you don't like this." <laughs> I get so many. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I know what the. PR letter is, is probably going to look like because the two things that uh, the comps are are a big thing now, the comparables. You've just got to have a list of things. And they're always wrong. The letters I get, they're well-meaning, and I know these publicists are trying to maximize the interest in the book. But they're, they're going to say, okay, for, for fans of, of, of Robert Jordan, and uh, right, off, right off the bat, I'm not in that subset. Uh, so, so there's that. Uh, and then the other thing is the formula X meets Y. Um, yeah. And the, you have to read, if, if you're somebody within the field, you have to read through the prose, which is not intended for the likes of us. It's intended for people who otherwise won't write the book. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what the comps are going to look like on the Book of Love. I am, I am too. I, you know, they now, publishers often involve the writer. They, they at least they will ask you uh, mm -hmm. If you have ideas for comps, but because I'm also half of a publishing team, I know that part of what they want with comps is they want books which are of the moment and are also mm. enormous bestsellers. So you cannot necessarily be honest with your comps uh, because the most honest comps might not be books that are in the top 10 for right, exactly, previous exactly. year. So it's always what I learned from looking at comps for a book is usually kind of backwards. It's what books oh, yeah, uh, seem to be the, the best selling books or the most in the, in the public eye books sort of. Oh yeah. No, no, no comp letter is ever going to say Angela <laughs> Carter meets Theodore Sturgeon. That's just not going to do the job. <laughs> I mean, it would That'll definitely interest me. It would interest me too, yeah. <laughs> yes, it'll be more Richard Bach meets Richard Bachman, right? That kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stephen King anyway. meets Richard Bachman. Anyway, we'll look forward to that uh, with bated breath. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I hope Not that you now. will enjoy it. But if you don't, 
that's also fine. But thank you all for, for doing this. <laughs> this was thank fun. you. Thank you so much for making time to do it. We really, really yeah. appreciate it. Well, maybe I will I will be be back for the novel. But I hope, hope I see so. y'all before Absolutely. then. Absolutely. Let's do that. Let's make a date. We'll we'll, we'll right. chat in nine months. All right. right. And give us maybe somewhere along the way too. But for All now, right. Kelly Link, thank you so very much. Until My the pleasure. next time. Until the next time, then this has been the Good Street Podcast. Probably yeah. <laughs>